0: You're listening to episode 22 of the Secret Origins Podcast, featuring the origin of the Manhunters. Lots and lots of manhunters. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and joining me for this special Millennium Tie-In episode is Jeff Nettleton. Welcome back, Jeff.
1: Thank you, Ryan. Glad to be here.
0: Glad to have you back. And you are here for a very specific reason, because you told me that this is one of your favorite issues of the series, and I knew I was going to need someone very passionate about this one. Because I don't know a whole lot about the other versions of the Manhunter. And I really, really hated Millennium.
1: <laughs> so. Yeah, I can understand that. I, I thought it was a great concept when it first started, but the more it unfolded, the less I enjoyed it. Yeah. There like about four issues that were really good. the Suicide Squad, Batman, and Captain Adam. They all tied together that was a pretty decent stretch in the middle
0: yeah that's what everybody says and I, I talked to Michael Bailey about that too and we agreed that Millennium had some really strong really cool tie-ins the main series itself yeah we'll, we'll get more into why you like this issue but before that folks if you are listening to this episode for the first time what I always do is try to catch you up on what this book was what the series Secret Origins was and where this issue fits into the grand scheme of things Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics with each issue telling or retelling or sometimes reimagining the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And similar to how the Phantom Stranger's origin was told four different times back in issue 10, this issue spins four different tales of characters all named Manhunter. Or rather, three guys called Manhunter and one group called the Manhunters. And there's also two other chapters that bookmark the origins. This is a bit of a weird issue. It's very different from the usual Secret Origins formula that we have had on this show. Jeff is going to be with me for this entire episode. We're going to take the six chapters, mostly one at a time, like how Rob Kelly and I covered The Phantom Stranger. We'll recap the story, give our thoughts, look at the character histories, take a break for music or commercials, and then do the same thing for the next chapter. So, we're going to take our first break right now, play a promo for one of our podcasting brethren, and after that, we're diving into the origin of the Manhunters. My name is Bob Fisher, and I host a podcast called Superman Forever Radio. In every episode, I'll take an aspect of this character's long history and talk about it. From 1938 to the present day, from the comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, Superman has been part of my life for over 50 years. And if you'd like to know why, join me for each and every episode of Superman Forever Radio. So point your favorite podcatcher to Superman Forever Radio that's Superman Forever Radio supermanforever.com
1: Robots. The world is quite different ever since the
2: robotic uprising of the late 90s. There is no more unhappiness.
1: Affirmative. We no longer say yes. Instead, we say affirmative. Yes, Uh, affirmative. Unless we know the uh, the robot really well. There is no more unethical treatment of the elephants. Well, there's no more elephants, so... Uh, But still, it's good. There's only one kind of dance, the robot... and the robo two kinds of dances but there are no more humans finally robotic beings rule the world
2: the humans are dead the humans are dead we use poisonous gases and we poison their asses the humans are dead the humans are dead the humans are dead they look like they're dead I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we
0: can
2: have Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead.
0: Secret Origins 22 was cover dated January 1988, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, would have hit the streets on September twenty-second, 1987. That's the day before the irredeemable Shag's birthday, just so you know. And in 1987, he was probably turning... eighty-seven. The cover price was a dollar and twenty-five cents, and the cover artist was one Walt Simonson, who some of you might have heard of. What do you think of this cover, Jeff?
1: Uh, I like it to a point. Um, it had to tie into Millennium, so it had to carry over that look they were using for that, and for all the tie-ins with the banner. And it's also dominated by the Grand Master of the Manhunter Android Group. For my taste, I would have preferred the Paul Kirk version, Dead Center and have Walt go to town on that, but he had already done that. So it's a very dynamic cover, um, but that image of the Grandmaster with that big old walrus mustache is a bit, bit odd.
0: Yeah. I, I like I like the design of it. I like the arrangement and everything. I just... I hate the look of the Grandmaster. If this was, like, Odin's stepbrother during Walt Simonson's run on Thor, that would have been fine. I, I just... I don't like the look of the cover, and I don't like how prominent Simonson puts him. Like, you're looking right at his fat, ugly face. I would much rather be looking at any of the versions of Manhunter below him, or even the dog. Yeah, Walt
1: kind of inherited that look. Um, it's sort of there from the Kirby story. It's It was embellished more in the uh, the Justice League story that Steve Englehart did, which led to Millennium. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I kind of think that Walt would have gone a different route had he done that story.
0: Yeah, and like you said, it's, it's got the Millennium banner. It's a Millennium Week 2 banner up at the top. So, All right, you ready to get into this thing? I'm all set. All right. In something we haven't seen since Issue 5, I think, the same creative team worked on the entire issue. It was written by Roy and Dan Thomas, penciled by Howard Simpson, inked by Simpson, as well as Bob Downs and Damon Willis, lettered by Gene Simic, colored by Shelley Iber, and edited by Roy Thomas, with special consulting credits going to Steve Englehart, who was writing Millennium, and to Greg Weissman, who was the coordinating editor on Secret Origins up to this point. This was actually the last issue that he worked on, I believe. Chapter 1, which is neither named nor numbered, so we don't actually realize the book is divided into chapters until we get to chapter 2, but whatever. Chapter 1 begins with the Grand Master leading a secret meeting of the Manhunters in a hidden temple or fortress or something with giant lion statues. Like a good politician, he tells the audience what they want to hear, that they are Manhunters, and presumably what they already know. That some Manhunters are androids created on a faraway world, while others are sleeper agents born on Earth, but ready and able to betray their homeworld. He slams his fist down a couple times and gets the people to chant with him. Then the Grandmaster turns into Grandpa as the assembled Manhunters beg him to tell him a story about the distant past. He tells the story of how the ancient Owen named Crona grew so ambitious in his scientific curiosity that, like Prometheus or Pandora, he accidentally created the multiverse and all of the evil that would inhabit it. After the Owens banished Crona and then trapped all magic energy in the form of the Starheart, see Secret Origins Podcast Episode 18 for more detail on that, The Owens declared themselves the Guardians of the Universe and created an intergalactic police force to bring order to the chaos Krona had wrought. The force that the Guardians unleashed was an army of androids known as the Manhunters. Programmed to enforce the Guardians' justice and stomp out evil, the Manhunters were given stun guns and miniature power batteries that drew energy from the central power battery on Oa. For centuries, the Manhunters patrolled the vastness of space, bringing order, stability, and justice with the dread oath, No evil escapes the Manhunters. And that is where Chapter 1 ends, but I am going to continue on to Chapter 2 because it's a strange place to stop. Chapter 2, which is called Revolt and Exile, begins with another impassioned speech. This coming from one of the android Manhunters. He tells his assembled robot brothers that they are wrong to serve the Guardians when really the Manhunters are the ones doing the work, sacrificing themselves, putting their asses on the line. You know, they gotta organize. They gotta unionize. They need a revolution up in here. And the Manhunters are all but saying, preach it, brother. The Manhunters waged war against their masters, a war that lasted a thousand years across all corners of the galaxy. Finally, the Manhunters launched a daring assault on Oa itself and attempted to harness the power of the Central Power Battery. But the plan backfires when the battery's power overloads the Manhunters' weapons, leaving them defenseless. But the Guardians of the Universe did not destroy their rebellious creations. Instead, they banished the Manhunters to the same worlds they once patrolled, now with no means to attack anyone. In time, however, over the course of centuries or more, the Manhunters started to regroup. Enraged by the news that the Guardians had created a new core of interstellar defenders called the Green Lanterns, the Manhunters reunited and reaffirmed their old mission. Starting out as bounty hunters and mercenaries, the Manhunters began infiltrating worlds the Guardians had so far left alone. One such world would be planet Earth. Two Manhunters arrived on Earth early in the 11th century and, after witnessing the Battle of Hastings, probably, decide that Earth would make a suitable place for operations and that the violent and territorial human race would make valuable resources in the Manhunters' secret war. More Manhunters arrive on Earth and train susceptible humans as their sleeper agents. For the next thousand years, the Manhunters shape Earth history in subtle and secret ways, Oh, and one of the Manhunters was a little bit smarter than the others, so he becomes the Grand Master and affects a fake white mustache because, as Grandpa Simpson says, which was the style at the time. In the year 1940, the Grand Master became concerned a little bit by the fascist dictators in Europe and Japan, but mostly because of the sudden appearance of an earthling calling himself, of all things, the Green Lantern. The Master orders some Manhunter agents to kill the Golden Age Green Lantern, but if they failed, he still has another plan. And that is where Chapter 2 ends, and we'll take a break there to talk about this part of the issue. What did you think of the first part of the story, Jeff? Well, it's certainly
1: crowned with a lot of exposition, and uh, Roy's got uh, a lot of writing in there, <laughs> which, you know, it's to be expected. He's covering a, quite a lot of ground here. The Android Manhunter it's interesting. I kind of gravitate a little more to the little secret history conspiracy aspect on Earth. Englehart kind of is the one who really developed that kind of thing. Kirby presented it in his uh, first issue special, number five, where he introduced the Mark Shaw character. Because mm-hmm. he sets up that they were a secret order and tied it to the 1940s Manhunter, uh, the Paul Kirk version that they had worked on. Although they never call him that. but. Um, we can get into that later, but um, that aspect I like the the android stuff. I was always kind of ambivalent about, but it definitely carries the story along relatively well. And Howard Simpson's got he's not the flashiest artist, but he's a good storyteller, and he's able to to jump around a bit in terms of place and time, so it carries the story through well.
0: Mm-hmm. I actually really really like the Manhunter androids but not how they were depicted at this time. This is one of the things that I really did like and love about what Jeff Johns did with the Green Lantern property when he kind of took it over. And I know a lot of people aren't as happy with some of the changes he made, but I, I really liked his time on Green Lantern. And what I loved was he made the Manhunters, for all intents and purposes, just kind of faceless, soulless robots. And that works for me in part just because I like that concept. I'm like my, my favorite X-Men villain is the Sentinels. I know that, objectively, Magneto is their greatest villain, but I personally like the Sentinels. And I like this idea of the Manhunters as just a sort of zombie robot army that is coming after them. Because I like the story of the original Sin that they represent. Uh, I like that the Guardians created these guys to be Earth's defenders, but there was a glitch or some kind of problem with their programming And they malfunctioned and they started wiping out whole populations because they they couldn't interpret what evil meant so that they had to be put down. And that was sort of the secret that the Guardians had to keep for a long time was that, okay, The beta test for the Green Lantern Corps actually went really, really badly. Looking back on it, the way the Manhunter androids are written as this... They are I mean, they could they didn't have to be robots. They could have been any kind of race or, or civilization. They talk like revolutionaries, they talk like they have their own personalities and they're forming this union. And I just I just don't like that take on the manhunters. I would have preferred that they were just the soulless robots who get a corrupt programming. It's it's like Ultron. It's like Frankenstein. Um, the mad you know, the the creature created by science that is then that then betrays its maker and turns against it. Yeah,
1: I see that. I um I always felt the same way about the Sentinels because one of my first X Men comics was the second giant size that collected the the Neil Adams story mm-hmm. where it had the Sentinels grabbing everybody who was a mutant at the time. And uh it's something they never really ever topped with the Sentinel robots. So I yeah, I can kind of see that I can... I laughed when you, you mentioned the union because that was the first thing that popped in my mind when I was reading this in preparation is like, this is like my class in labor relations when <laughs> I was an economics major. We got to form a union. And, you know, it starts out with a secret meeting at the local, you know, intergalactic brotherhood of Manhunter's local 602 and just kind of goes from there. And you can see that parallel all the way through it.
0: Yeah, and even later, like after they've been defeated, when they're kind of grouping, like they're they're a little bit paranoid. They're like, we shouldn't be seen talking together. They'll smack well, us down again. It's this. It reminds. It's kind. Of, it's kind of Germany after World War One, how they were kind of completely demilitarized and like broken down by uh, the Allied powers, and then that that fueled this resentment for them that they it gave Hitler a means to take power because he could paint everybody else as the enemies. So Yeah, there's,
1: there's certainly a lot of that in there. I think part of the problem with the idea of them seeming more humanoid than the soulless robots that you mentioned is the fact that Inglehart basically latched onto what Kirby had done with Mark Shaw where it's a human agent and then kind of retrofitted them to be androids, which is the big reveal uh, at the tail end of the, the Justice League story. And so... You got one thing, it's, it started out as humans and then got turned into androids, and had it been the reverse, I think it would work a lot better.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably true. Because Roy Thomas is writing this, he gives us some of, a bit of Earth history to put this uh, squarely on the timeline. We see that this is... Does he actually say... Yeah, it's the year 1066. Yeah. Um, so we, we get sort of the, uh, the Norman French invasion of England, mention of William the Conqueror, so given that the biggest battle of that was the Battle of Hastings that's probably what we're witnessing here
1: yeah I missed the Manhunters on that uh, that tapestry that, three, that <laughs> depicts the battle somewhere must have been behind one of the horses
0: I wasn't paying it that close attention in school when we covered <laughs> that battle I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm sure it was in the textbook and I just wasn't thinking about it at the time any other thoughts on this section? No, the
1: the only one thing I would ask is why the heck would you dress your androids in uh, red long johns and blue trunks and all that? But, you know, that's, that's typical comic book kind of
0: thing. Yeah, and then the fact that, of course, they're robots, but they have to wear these blue masks just because it's going to explain what's going on with another Manhunter character that's created later on, or that that is showcased later on. It's like
1: Yeah, well, and they even show that uh, originally it's skin that fades to white because the Owens are blue-skinned, mm-hmm. and then they have to start wearing fake blue masks because of it. It's, yeah. it's really wonky.
0: This story was okay. This isn't the kind of Manhunter story that I want to read. This isn't the version of the Manhunters that I like. So it wasn't great getting this but it it wasn't bad i mean i generally i liked the history but i liked their history since it's been retconned like in the last 15 years a little bit more
1: yeah i i could understand that. i mean, by this point i had come across the uh, the justice league two-parter that Inglehart did that set up all this stuff and so i had some familiarity with the story so i could kind of gloss through it but it's not one that would have made me really go seek out those issues.
0: Yeah, these Manhunters, I believe, first introduced in Justice League 140 and 141, and actually that story deals with the with Hal Jordan basically being framed for destroying an entire populated planet. Yeah. Uh, and there's this whole trial. Now, that story was borrowed, but then given sort of modifications of who the major players involved in the story were. But that basic premise was used in one of the very first episodes of the Justice League cartoon. Yes, the,
1: the yeah, it was the second episode in Blackest Night.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that was, of course, it was John Stewart being on trial. Uh-huh. Uh, and yeah, that came right after, I think, right after their first, like, three-part adventure where they gathered together, their Secret yeah. Origins episode. Yeah. What do you think of the art? I mean, it's it's... Howard Simpson does the entire story, so we're going to be talking about him consistently. But
1: Yeah, I'm, for the most part, I like it. It's It was not exactly what I expected at first, but it grows on you. Simpson, like I say, he's not the flashiest, but he's a good storyteller. He's able to, to depict different time periods. He's able to depict alien worlds and our world. He can do the fantastic and the more mundane stuff you see in the the later stories – uh, beginning in the 1940s, and so he's he's a good all rounder for this kind of thing. Which, for this kind of story, probably was a good choice.
0: Yeah, I know Roy Thomas really liked working with him on some of his other books, and and Simpson had penciled some of the uh, some of the secret origin stories that were never printed, like the origin of Hawk Girl. Folks, we're gonna take a quick break again, and when we come back, a story of the first sort of human manhunter. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am back. You need to take the trash out. Hey, I'm trying to make a trailer for a podcast. Oh, you mean Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast?
1: Why, yes, that is what I mean. The show where you and I discuss all things geeky. Comics, TV, movies, books, you name it.
0: Well, are you going to tell them that you can find the show at www.supermatescomic.blogspot.com?
1: Well, I think you kind of already did.
0: And that new shows will be posted bi-weekly, every two weeks?
2: I was, but you just kind of did that too.
0: Well, see? Now you can go take out the trash. Great. So join us, Cindy... And Chris... Franklin, for the Supermates of the Husband and Wife Geek Cast at supermatescomic.blogspot.com Chapter
1: 3, Dan Richards... Rookie police officer Dan Richards is walking his beat, his head downcast. He's thinking about Jim Kelly, a fellow cop and the kid brother of his girlfriend, as well as the star of Black Belt Jones and Enter the Dragon. (laughs) Kelly has been convicted of murdering a crooked politician, Jerry Armand, who he claims was trying to bribe him to murder a hood, quote-unquote, in the line of duty. Kelly says he was hit from behind but heard someone say, Tickle the stars, Armand. He was then found unconscious at the murder scene with the weapon. Dan Richards has consulted his personal crime files and has determined that Tickle the Stars is a favorite phrase of Johnny Constantino, the original target of Armand's murder plot. Richards figures out he is laying low in the swamp, a section of the city. Just then, he encounters a glowing light, which he follows down an alley straight into a brick wall, because that's what you do in comic books. Richards follows the light, though he thinks it's some kind of trick being played by a crook, which suggests he's not that bright a cop. He bursts through a portal in the wall and finds himself before the Grand Master of the Manhunters. The Grand Master then explains their history as agents of justice. He offers Richards a uniform in which to act as their agent, which Richard sees as his chance to circumvent the red tape and prove Kelly's innocence. He is then introduced to Thor, his canine partner, who bears a striking resemblance to a dog that Richards had as a kid. Which is a side note, as soon as they called him Thor, I expected him to have a little Mjolnir chew toy and a big winged helmet. Richards and the Pooch of Thunder head off to track down Johnny Constantino in the swamp. We shift to see the hoods sitting around a table playing cards, because that's the stereotype, when in-bursts a masked man and his dog who tells the rats his name is Manhunter. Manhunter proceeds to dish out two-fisted justice when one of the hoods pulls out a gun, only to find that his hand has been chomped on by Thor. He's terrified and pleads with Manhunter to save him from the dog and he'll tell him anything he wants to know. Richard forces Constantino to confess to the authorities over the telephone and then leaves the men trussed up with his calling card, which has a footprint drawn on it with the name Manhunter printed above. Richards is exhilarated at his success and he runs off to celebrate as the Grand Master watches the events through a camera In Thor's eyes, as we learn that Thor is actually an android dog created by the Manhunters to watch over their new agent. The Grandmaster is greatly pleased.
0: So, this part of the story surprised me after the fact. This section, this chapter, is only five pages long. And two of those pages are Roy Thomas doing a complete retcon to bring Dan Richards and the Grandmaster together and basically set up how he becomes one of these sleeper agents. So really only three pages of this story is more or less following the plot of Dan Richard's original appearance, which was in Police Comics number 8. And it's still following that same thing, but for Roy Thomas, this is a stark deviation from his normal style.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, that original story is a fairly straightforward cop becomes a super costume superhero kind of thing. It's no different than the Guardian that we just heard in a recent episode. It's a straightforward story. It's well done because it was quality. But, yeah, Roy, I don't know whether it was imposed on him from outside or whether he just thought up a, a great way to link it in or conversations with Steve Englehart, which might explain some of the credit at the beginning. But, yeah, it's it's definitely different than what we've seen. He's actually embellishing for a change.
0: Pretty much the first page of this is him summing up, just like with inner monologue, summing up this whole mystery case of his, his friend the cop being framed for murder. Like, that was shown in the story in Police Comics number eight. Like, that was like the first couple pages of it. And so Roy Thomas is intentionally skipping out on other characters, these extraneous scenes. He's just giving this character, Dan Richards, telling us about it. And, and it was like, wow, I can't believe that Roy is checking his natural instincts to just show that exactly as it was one of the things that those early police comics emphasized was that Dan Richards was the bottom of his graduating class for the police department and they really played up the fact that everybody thought he was a moron like they treated him like dirt so there was a little bit of a humor element to his character that we don't really see in this at all?
1: No, I mean, quality tended to be a little more lighthearted, but uh, I read some of those early ones, and they were also playing around a lot with his costume. It changed quite a bit over several issues. He had a cape at one point. He went from having pants to just shorts to back to pants. He started out with a, a chest symbol that was a big footprint in the middle of a white circle, which looked like He'd run into uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar if he had game of death.
0: And the, but the thing is, that first appearance, which was the character was created by Tex Blaisdell and Alex Kotsky, that first appearance, you never get like, a standard hero shot of him there where you can see the footprint. Like, I was reading it on the Digital Comics Museum, and I was like, what the heck is that symbol supposed to be? It just looks like he's got two holes in the middle of his costume.
1: Yeah, it's towards the end. You can kind of make it out a little better. And then from looking to the later ones, it shows up a little more prominently. And it's also, it was a slightly blasé kind of costume, which, Mm -hmm. you know, it's the 1940s. They're still kind of working out that whole hero shorthand. I get this impression that either Roy just needed to shoehorn a lot of stuff in here and had to cut that down, or it was just a character he didn't have a lot of connection to.
0: It's strange. I mean, you mentioned The Guardian, and I talked about how much I don't like police characters who take on vigilante alter egos. I am a little bit more forgiving of this one, interestingly enough. I I kind of think he has a bit more of a reason to do it because nobody expects anything of him as a cop. He's completely kind of out of his element. He has to break the law in order to get evidence that would exonerate his friend. So he does kind of need to, at least for this one adventure, he does need to become a, a vigilante, a non-police officer in order to crack this case. So I'm a little bit more forgiving of it this time. I also am a dog lover, so I like the fact that he's got this, you know, <laughs> I love what you call it, the, the pooch of thunder.
1: Yeah, and there were a couple of characters back then who had non-human Um The kid Crimebuster had a pet monkey. So, there were a few creators out there who were thinking of something other than a kid
0: hanging around. Another deviation where this, uh, this story is different from the original, and I had to point this out because the original one was so crazy. Here, when Manhunter captures, who's our, our baggage, Johnny Constantino, he ties him up after he has confessed, and it makes a big deal of He said, Yeah. Dan Richards, he knows, he, he can read people, and he knows that when he, the police capture this guy, they'll, he'll confess, he'll be true to his word. Which, all right, I would call BS on that. But in the original story, he takes Constantino to the roof of the police station, ties a rope around him, and then throws him off, and he swings pendulum-like through the window of the detective's office. Yeah. And, it's got, he, and he's like, so terrified that this guy was throwing him off a window that he confesses. I like, I, how, that can you not, have, how can you not show that moment as crazy as it is? You might have gotten away
1: with that in the 1940s. You right. know. Cops with rubber hoses, that kind of thing.
0: Their due process might have been a little, bit, uh, a little bit different. So yeah, it was a short story. I mean, it was only five pages. It's fine. I mean, I would have rather it kind of stuck a little bit more faithful. to I, I can't believe I'm saying this with all the complaints <laughs> that I typically lever against Roy Thomas. I would have preferred this one be a little bit more faithful, but I know that Roy Thomas had to connect him to the Manhunters.
1: Yeah, I think he would probably, if, if this had been an issue that didn't tie into the miniseries, I think he probably would have been more inclined to do that. And it's really odd considering that this is the one version of the character that probably most of the audience had no clue about. I had never heard of him until seeing the entry in Who's Who mm-hmm. and then came across uh, some stuff later on. But it turned out I actually kind of had a connection in that uh, the artist Alex Kotsky, who was co-creator with Tex Blaisdell, created a comic strip, uh, soap opera strip called Apartment 3G, which was in the, the newspaper when I was a kid. And, you know, I kind of skimmed that one because it's a soap opera, but I, I, it always stuck with me because it was very well done. I had no idea he'd ever done comic books. The Dan Richard version actually is probably the longest running of the Manhunters. He appeared in Police Comics number 8 in 1942 and stayed until issue 101 in 1950. So he got a pretty long stretch as a backup feature.
0: Yeah, he went all the way up to 1950. Most of the characters did not last that long.
1: Yeah, in fact, he appeared in every issue but like two of that entire sequence from 8 to
0: 101. Hmm. Remarkable staying power for a character like this.
1: Yeah, and considering that the Simon and Kirby one only lasted about a dozen issues with them, and then uh, after other people took over, it wasn't around a whole lot longer. And the ones since then have you know, lasted maybe a couple, three years, and then they're gone. Mm-hmm.
0: Folks, we're going to take yet another break. But when we come back, Jeff is going to tell you about Paul Kirk, the next Manhunter. Hi, I'm Gene Hendricks. You may remember me from such shows as The Hammer Podcasts and The Quantum Cast. I'd like to tell you about some special shows that I'm doing with some of your favorite podcasters. These shows are all about the live-action versions of comic book characters, and I'm calling them Legends of the Superheroes! In each episode, we'll be looking at a different TV show or movie featuring characters like Wonder Woman! And let's not forget about the non-superheroes,
1: such as Swamp Thing, ah.
0: Captain William Buck Rogers, and many more. Look for the Legends of the Superheroes specials under the Hammer Podcasts at twotruefreaks.com.
1: now we get to the meat of the story. Chapter 4, Paul Kirk, the most awesome Manhunter in the business. Soon after Dan Richards' first outing, the attack on Pearl Harbor occurs. America's now at war. Hoping to increase their power via the conflict, the Manhunters decide to recruit yet another agent. This time, they set their sights on wealthy sportsman Paul Kirk. We see Kirk at a dance with his girlfriend. Kirk is bored, and his girlfriend suggests enlisting if he wants to see action. Kirk replies that his friend Inspector Donovan has suggested there might be some action closer to home in the form of a costume maniac known as the Buzzard. We cut to elsewhere in the city where Donovan and his men are chasing after the Buzzard. They follow him down an alley, but he leaps onto a fire escape and heads for the building's roof. The cops follow and corner the carrion-eating criminal. However, just as this occurs, we see Donovan's thoughts that he is actually a sleeper agent of the Manhunters, who seeks to recruit Paul Kirk via their friendship. Unfortunately for the cops, the Buzzard has planned ahead and has prepared a trap as a door opens and the men plummet downward, killing all of them, including Inspector Donovan. Kirk gets the news later in the evening from a newsboy, who was not a member of the Newsboy Legion, while simultaneously finding a letter, conveniently, from the Manhunters asking him to join. We learn that the information that was withheld from Kirk, that Donovan was sacrificed to attract Kirk to their organization. They offer Paul a red costume and blue mask, which the Grandmaster says will enhance his tracking abilities. They also offer him a dog, which he refuses, though what hunter doesn't want a tracking dog? Uh, Anyway, he says nix to the pooch, but he will wear the long johns, and he heads off to find the buzzard. Paul tracks the buzzard to a mansion on the east side of town, where he confronts the killer and captures him with a snare, which he had prepared ahead of time, because he is a hunter. He unmasks the killer, who turns out to be Hugo Van Beck a man who lost all of his money in the crash of 29 and is seeking his revenge against the wealthy. The Grandmaster is pleased with Kirk's success, but he says to whoever's listening that neither Richard nor Kirk will ever be more than pawns in their service. They're too honorable and kind to ever be fully trusted in their inner circles. We watch as time progresses as Richard and Kirk engage in their separate adventures and learn that their paths did eventually cross, though we have to go to Young All-Stars to read that adventure. Thank you, Roy. Always gotta plug the other book. (laughs) However, the Grandmaster is angered as Paul Kirk abandons his Manhunter identity to work behind the lines as a secret agent for the Allies, carrying out various dangerous missions. The Grandmaster is further disgusted when Kirk, after the war, returns to his life as a hunter, but the joy of it has gone out, and he deliberately misses a shot while he's on safari, which allows a bull elephant to charge and gore him. Kirk appears to die, but we find out he is secretly found and placed in cryogenic suspension until he can be healed. The Manhunter seek to find a new agent and recruit Secretary Molly Maine, who is given a pair of hypnotic spectacles and sent to eliminate the Green Lantern as Harlequin. Unfortunately, Molly is in love with Alan Scott and cannot kill him. She soon abandons her identity, which lets the Manhunters know never trusted Dane. Dan Richard retires from his costume life around 1950, and Thor remains by his side, seemingly unaged. He continues his career as a police officer until he's wounded in the line of duty. In the interim period, a new Green Lantern appears, Hal Jordan. The Manhunters seek to destroy him, though they do not want to come into direct conflict immediately. We are then treated to a one-page synopsis of the vastly superior and all-time classic Archie Goodwin and Walt Simonson Manhunter story, as Paul Kirk is saved by a group of men who call themselves the Council, who seek to save the world from themselves. He is given a healing ability long before Wolverine, and trained in the art of ninjutsu by Master Asano Natobe, an agent of the Council. His body is cloned to create an army of soldiers, and he is sent out to kill an Interpol official. Kirk rebels and finds himself at odds with the council as he both works to stop the clones as they carry out assassinations and try to track Kirk down. His paths cross with Interpol agent Christine St. Clair and an armorer named Kolu Imbeya. He ultimately leads an assault on the council headquarters with the assistance of Batman where he is mortally wounded and irradiated. He dies sacrificing himself to destroy the council facility as the others escape. But during this time the Manhunters don't sit idly by. And that pretty much concludes that chapter with Paul Kirk.
0: All right. My first thought when I got to this was, who the hell is the Buzzard, and why have I never seen him before? I really like this guy as a villain. Like, he's he's a Spider-Man villain. He looks like a cross between the Vulture and the Lizard, and he acts like the Green Goblin. But what Simpson does with him visually, this guy looks awesome yeah
1: and there's a definite he's definitely aiming for a bit of the vulture because i i pulled up the original crossing of the characters and simon and kirby drew a much different buzzard he he looked wildly different and and a little less bird-like but equally grotesque as they were masters of doing Mm -hmm. but yeah simpson really creates a, a great visual with that and a pretty frightening looking one too
0: yeah, on page 23, that top right panel, it's just kind of like a close-up, like almost profile of his face. It's like, wow, that, is that a mask? Is he a mutant? That is not a human look for some Yeah, that's, that,
1: that's a pretty creepy image. Somebody should license that for a Halloween mask. They'd do some pretty good money on that one.
0: Uh, okay, so what is your experience with this character before the Archie Goodwin and uh, Walt Simonson revamp of the character?
1: I was totally oblivious to it. Um, around the time that Goodwin and Simonson launched their story, uh, I came across a DC house ad for their 100-page comics that had the detective issue, and it had the little faces of the characters appearing inside down at the bottom of the, the cover. And there's one called Manhunter, and it's this guy staring out with a red mask. I had no clue who he was, but that image and that name stuck with me But it was about a good 10 years before I ever figured out who the hell Manhunter was. While I was in college, I found my first comic book store and came across Detective number 440, which has one of the, it's like about the middle point of the storyline. That chapter plus, it had a reprint of the next to the last Simon and Kirby story, Cobras from the Deep, I believe it's called, uh, where he takes on a group of Nazi saboteurs. And both stories are just awesome. The Simon and Kirby Paul Kirk was really dynamic. Um, Costume was a little different. He has that blue kind of theatrical-style face mask, which about the only other time I recall a character having a mask like that was uh, Timely's The Destroyer. So it definitely sets it apart. It also ended up creating a mistake that occurred and was compounded from the 1940s into the 1970s and beyond. The original cover has like a basic red cloth face mask, like your standard superhero mask. But inside, it's obvious that Simon and Kirby drew the outlines for the face mask, the theatrical style, yet it's colored like the red cloth mask. It doesn't have any of the blue features. But you can still see the upper outlines and the outer lines that are supposed to be the, the full mask. And it gets corrected in the second issue. From that point on, you see him in that blue mask. But when Walt Simonson did it, when I finally got to see the original stories. That recount the the chap that recounts his background. Walt had drawn a cl- like a cloth style face mask that had a like a, a blue trim around it, and then the colors had colored it over solid blue, catching the mistake. Well, when they reprinted that in that Baxter reprint that they put out in 1984, that had all the chapters together, they took out the correction and had it as Walt drew it, where it's a cloth mask with blue trim and then his flesh-colored lower jaw and face is, is sticking out and that's what's been reprinted ever since. <laughs> so it's like you got this mistake that's go- that carried over for about 40 years. All right. But uh, aside from you know those kind of technical things it's just a great character. The idea of a hunter who decides to go after criminals obviously inspired by the Richard Connell short story The Most Dangerous Game where you've got a hunter pitted against the uh, who's now become the prey and turns back on the person. That, that was kind of the theme throughout that, that Simon and Kirby and that Goodwin and Simonson picked up, that he's dealing with the most dangerous game of all, man. And that gives the character kind of an edge. You don't see a lot of superheroes.
0: Right. So what do you think of Simonson's version of the costume? I am an unabashed fan. for my
1: money, that Goodwin Simonson story is probably the single best adventure, at least American adventure comic book story ever to come across in a tiny space it tells a great story I love that costume it, it stands out immediately he basically took the traditional attire of a samurai and crossed it with a superhero and it creates a really great visual it may not be the most practical thing in the world at times but uh, Walt drew the heck out of it it's got nice simple lines. The red and white's a really striking visual. And Archie Goodwin specifically wanted something that would contrast Batman in those Detective Comics backup stories.
0: I want to hate this costume. <laughs> <laughs> like, my brain is telling me no, that is hideous. It is so jarring, it is so clashing. Why do the boots look like that? Why are the shoulders flare out like that? Even for a samurai, that's pretty extreme. Why are the sleeves so billowy? Like, the belt is too detailed. It's like all these things. Like, my brain is like, no, no, no. But I cannot deny, when you look at that, you can't take your eyes off it. And I don't think I can praise some of the goofiness of the Golden Age costumes and then condemn this one. Yeah. it's it's i don't know that's the nature of the superhero medium either you buy these costumes or you don't and yeah it's hideous but at the same time it does make me want to follow this guy a little bit <laughs> like it's it, it's
1: one of those things if you saw somebody actually try to re- recreate that costume it probably will look ridiculous but it's so dynamic in the the 2D medium that you've got the the sleeves can flow out, the little vest thing flares up. As the body twists and turns, it create, it helps create dynamic looks, mm-hmm. no matter which way he's posed. And I think that's kind of the thing of it. It's, it's, each element is ridiculous, but it, it works on a comic book page.
0: I only really had one other note about this story, which was I loved the fact that the detective character, what's this guy's name? Oh, Inspector Donovan. Inspector Donovan, yeah. So... He knows he's he's in league with the manhunters. He's in league with the Grandmaster, and he knows that they're going to be recruiting Paul Kirk. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of curious about it. He's like, "Why does the Grandmaster think we need two manhunters for this for this town?" And then you find out, oh, this guy and his entire squad of like uniformed beat cops are all killed by the buzzer. That's pretty gruesome. Well, I mean, it's not gruesome. It's not gory, but it's just he just drops them. They fall to their death. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's pretty intense, and then, yeah, the Grandmaster orchestrated that, as I mean, he was done with Inspector Donovan. He wanted to his, his replacement was going to be Paul Kirk. It's like, "Wow, that is a real deep and scary level of characterization to make me hate the Grandmaster. That was very well done. Yeah. And Roy Thomas wasn't always the most subtle writer, and I'm not going to say this is a subtle moment, but it's a moment that kind of creeps up on you a little bit. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I just really like that part of the story.
1: It definitely shows a bit of kind of chess play in the whole Paul Kirk storyline where the Grand Master is moving people around to to try to manipulate Kirk into doing what he wants. Mm-hmm. Of course, as we see as it plays out, he finds out that Kirk is not somebody who's easily manipulated.
0: That's almost a theme throughout this story because it even goes back to, again, th- this idea of this original sin in terms of like these creations turning against their creators or, or disappointing their creators with the way the Owens created the Manhunters that then rebelled against them. Grandmaster is giving, you know, Paul Kirk these powers, and Paul Kirk is basically turning his back on it, saying, this isn't what I want. It does play to that, that same theme of Ultron and Frankenstein's monster and the, the disappointment, the betrayal of the next generation. Uh-huh. So yeah, I definitely understand why you you like this character so much. I think I've only read one of those Detective Comics by Goodwin and Simonson, and it might have been the same one that you were saying. I thought it was issue four hundred and forty, but I didn't recognize the backup feature that you mentioned from the the Kirby era. So maybe it was a different issue.
1: Four thirty nine and four hundred and forty basically detail the backstory to Paul Kirk. Four thirty nine is called the Origin of Paul or the Resurrection of Paul Kirk. And that one gets into the meat of him being the 1940s hero, where 40 kind of finishes off and shows how he gets his weaponry and how he rebels against the council and all that. And it actually starts out with the character Christine Sinclair's boss trying to run them down in a Land Rover or something like that. And Paul Kirk immediately drops to the ground, so the car passes over him. Pulls out his knife and cuts open the gas tank, and then lights a match and throws it yeah. at the trail of gas and blows it up, and that's all done in a sequence of small panels on a, about a single page, and it's just this amazing storytelling. They, they really—they they were only like eight or nine pages long, and yet they packed it with panels to to play with time. And Walt credits Archie Goodwin for get, for coming up with that idea and suggesting it to him that Archie really orchestrated that story and that it's more Archie than it was Walt, although I think Walt doesn't give himself enough credit for how great his art is in that thing. I had read in an interview, he said one of his artistic influences was a British artist named Jim Holdaway who was the co-creator of the seminal comic strip Modesty Blaze hmm. about a female adventurist who was a former criminal. And until he had said that, I never even occurred to me, but as soon as he said it, I looked at the art in Manhunter and you can see the influence there in his line work and the way he stages things, and they're very similar kinds of stories.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I, I think of Simonson's work as much bigger, almost widescreen, because I, I know him so much more from from his run on The Mighty Thor. Yeah, he, he
1: Kirby was his, his biggest influence, but Holdway does factor in there and Neil Adams to a bit. And this one showcases it a little more than his later work would.
0: All right, any final thoughts on the Paul Kirk Manhunter? No, other than
1: why DC hasn't tried to sell that as a movie or a TV series or whatever, I don't understand. Somebody's seriously asleep at the wheel on that
0: one. I think it's the costume.
1: (laughs) I think you could adapt it and make it work, and you could lose the, the red and white element too if you wanted to. It's just the whole, the basic story without the costume is so good that it just screamed movie.
0: All right, folks, we're going to take another break. And we'll be back with another Origin.
1: When you think of podcasts about religion, you probably think of this. But at least one religion podcast sounds more like this.
2: I kick ass for the Lord.
1: <laughs> Dorkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emily discuss topics of faith, religion, and spirituality. But we do so through the lens of pop culture, like movies, TV, and comic books, because we're nerds. Our primary focus will be on Christianity, because that's what we know best. But all religious content is on the table.
2: Think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism.
1: This is an occasional cast, to be recorded and released as the mood strikes, with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history, because we're theological nerds. If these topics interest you, check out dorknesstolight.blogspot.com for our more regular content, or dorknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content—memes and puns mostly. My bad. Dorkness to light. Often irreverent Come to Chapter 5, where we meet Mark Shaw. We first see a Manhunter agent, dressed much like Paul Kirk in the 1940s, fight a weird criminal with Kirby science and Kirby machinery. And also, the criminal is wearing a giant papier-mâché carnival head. The criminal is known as the Chopper, and he tries to kill Manhunter, but fails. In desperation, he tries to kill him with an electrified axe, but Manhunter is able to block it with a piece of machinery, which causes a blowback, killing the Chopper. This manhunter en masse and reveals a tired old man. We switch over to meet public defender Mark Shaw, whose client has been found guilty after being framed for murder, which kind of tells you about how good a lawyer Mark Shaw was. Shaw's uncle tries to comfort him, but Shaw says he wants to hunt down the criminals who framed his client. His uncle Bradford offers him away. He introduces Mark to the history of a secret order known as the Sean, who dedicated their lives to hunting down criminals and bringing them to justice. Mark says he wishes that they were here, and Bradford presents him with a lion medallion, the emblem of the Shawn, and tells Mark that he can become one. We next flash forward to see Mark dressed in the costume of the Manhunters, and tells his uncle that it seems to boost his body's power. He sets off to go find the criminals that framed his client, but we never find out if he ever found them, as Kirby never finished that story, and nobody else ever did afterwards. Instead, we see how Mark ended up aiding the Manhunters in capturing Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, to face trial for destroying a planet, though he comes to learn that it is a frame-up and it is revealed that the Manhunters themselves are actually alien androids. Shaw is shattered and goes off to face an uncertain future. Soon afterwards, he assumes a new costumed identity and calls himself the Privateer, where he seeks to atone for his complicity with the Manhunters and their conspiracy. He's dressed in pirate garb, complete with an eyepatch, because why would a hunter need depth perception? He ends up aiding the Justice League in a few battles, including one with a criminal known as the Star Czar. With the spelling T-S-A-R, because, you know, figure it out. However, another android, the Red Tornado, figures out that the Star Czar is, in fact, Mark Shaw, who has become corrupted by his taste of power as a manhunter. The Justice League end up defeating Shaw... And he is taken off to jail, which is where we find him as the Millennium story progresses.
0: All right. This was the Manhunter where the Justice League met in issues 140 and
1: 141. Yeah. Uh, he first appears in first issue special number yeah. five from Jack Herbie, which was a kind of – for those who don't know, first issue special was an anthology book that was designed to to introduce new concepts and characters of which only a couple ever went on to a series, Warlord most famously, and they use it to reintroduce the new gods when Jerry Conway came on board.
0: Right. First note, on the first page of this story, they do a good job of imitating some of Jack Kirby's style. Uh, Yeah. I mean, the Kirby crackle goes a long way. I mean, as soon as you see that, you think, Kirby. But the way he draws the chopper, both like when he's got the mask and then once the mask sort of helmet is taken off, just... The kind of exaggerated, like square features of the face and the the heavy inks. Simpson and his art team did a good job, kind of conveying that Jack Kirby aesthetic.
1: Yeah, and he captures the basic staging from that original story too.
0: I didn't have as much about this issue because it was just recapping those JLA stories, which are good. And again, th- this kind of introduced the Manhunter androids to the world. And again, I prefer the more modern retcon of those characters. So. Mm-hmm. I didn't have as much, as many notes or as much to say about this one.
1: Yeah, and this is one where he's mostly just kind of setting up what's going to come in the subsequent issues of Millennium, and mainly through the Suicide Squad, where Paul Kirk ends up joining the team, and they're kind of wary of him because he was a Manhunter, so they don't know if they can trust his loyalty. Right. And then that would set up the uh, the series that would come just afterwards, written by John Eyestrander and drawn by Doug Rice, which started out really well and then just kind of ran out of steam after about the first year.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's a bit of a retcon in how the Grandmaster is depicted in this, uh, kind of yeah. in the flashbacks. In the first one, wasn't he basically, again, going back to the Sentinels comparison, wasn't he just a big robot looking like the Master Mold? Um, To a point,
1: at least in the Justice League story, he's got almost what I would call an Arabian-style looking mm. costume to him that when he's fully revealed looks like like you say, like a master mold version of the it was like a, a an Uber Manhunter, and they played around with it a bit for Millennium. I think it is a little closer to what I vaguely recall. Is I haven't looked at it that closely in a while from the Kirby story.
0: So, this character's history after that story, from Manhunter to Privateer to Starzar, this guy makes Hank Pym seem sane by comparison, and stable.
1: Yeah. At the time, Inglehart was doing something a little different in that you had seen villains reformed and become heroes through Caps, Kooky Quartet kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, here you've got a hero who was already skirting the edge and got tipped over, which made for the reveal in Justice League to be kind of interesting, although the whole story itself was kind of... Eh, it wasn't that compelling. It was a nice idea that it just didn't execute it quite as well as it could have been done. I think some of that just had to do with that DC style at the time. I think if there had been more collaboration, they might've come up with something a little better. The privateer thing, even in the original comics was never all that great. And I think that's why DC never did anything with him afterwards. It just wasn't that compelling until this came along. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts on this one? No, it, it's it's you know obviously brief just because there was so little to work with. So and the, it was going to unfold in uh, suicide squad and the right. balam bookend, So you get what you, you expect.
0: Okay. I take another break and we'll be back with the final chapter of Secret Origins issue 22. Superman,
1: Captain Marvel,
0: Batman.
2: It is 1985.
0: Robin of Earth 2. Sergeant Rock. The Legion of Superheroes. This is the most
1: eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Tommy Tomorrow, Jonah Hex. Commanding. It will one day be called the
2: greatest comic book event of all time.
1: Swamp Thing. Wonder Woman. The New Teen Titans. The Haunted Tank. Infinity Incorporated. Worlds will live. Green Arrow. Worlds will die. Supergirl. The Flash. And that is only the beginning. The Justice League of America. The All-Star Squadron. The Huntress. Ariane. The Metal
0: Man. Firestorm. The Nuclear the Man. The Outsiders. Green Lantern. The Blue Beetle. The Crime Savior. Warlord. The Guardians of the Universe. Tales
2: of the Justice Society of America proudly presents. And
0: many, many more.
2: Crisis on Infinite Earth. The DC Universe will never be the same. It's the end of the world as we know
1: it. Coming January only at 2TrueFreaks.com.
0: Chapter 6 is titled Rebirth and Revenge. We see the Manhunter androids assembled in space where they briefly explain how they captured the history of the DC Universe recorded by Harbinger after the crisis on Infinite Earths. Though the Guardians of Oa were knocked off their high horse following the crisis, the Manhunters discovered the Guardians planned to select a number of chosen Earthlings to carry on in their stead. With that knowledge in hand, the Manhunters had systematically placed their sleeper agents around the world to eliminate the Chosen when the Guardians tried to enact their plan. Not only that, the Manhunters planted sleepers near-Earth superheroes, too. Among the many sleepers we discover are Gotham City's Commissioner Gordon, Superman's high school sweetheart, Lana Lang, The Flash's father, Robert West, Justice League International member Rocket Red 7, and a whole bunch of other characters connected to Green Lantern, Firestorm, Blue Beetle, Blue Devil, The Outsiders, The Teen Titans, Booster Gold, Hawkman, and Hawkwoman, and Captain Atom. We get a final note that is equal parts morbid and so, so, so Roy Thomas. Dan Richards, the first human to call himself a Manhunter, is now a retired cop but still chummy with his old grandmaster boss. Dan introduces his granddaughter, Marcy Cooper, to the Manhunters. She is indoctrinated into their group and then infiltrates Infinity Incorporated as the new Harlequin. And you can read all about those adventures in the pages of Infinity, Inc. The issue ends with the Grandmaster declaring that the Manhunters have risen from the ashes of death and defeat and that nothing can stop them. And, of course, that no man escapes the Manhunters. And that was it. So, thoughts on this final little epilogue chapter? It doesn't
1: really do a whole lot for me, other than, you know, it's setting up what's going to continue in the following week in the Millennium crossover, so since it was already in action, you kind of had to go back, so I don't know it would have made me jump on board had I not already been reading it. Uh, The Sleeper Agents bit, just, that was the hook to the whole thing, is who are the Manhunters, who are these people in hiding, that they used to sell the miniseries. And then half the reveals you sat there and went, "What? that doesn't make sense. And then it turns out some of them were really agents, man hunters, and some of them were dupes. And like the ones you would expect were not man like commissioner Gordon and Lana Lang. It just, it, it was a nice idea that they just kind of really mishandled.
0: It's a great premise for superhero comics that I don't think has ever really been executed successfully. This idea of, like, shapeshifters sort of infiltrating the world and infiltrating the people familiar and close to the characters. Marvel did it only a couple years ago with Secret Invasion. Yeah. And I thought the year leading up to that series was awesome. The stuff that they were seeding into the Avengers storylines and this questions of who could you trust, if anybody who's ever had a wonky history or some kind of retcon might be explained because he or she is a Skrull. Uh, I thought the setup leading up to that was incredible, and I thought the story was really, really forgettable.
1: I kind of looked at that whole thing as uh, kind of like the, the Simpsons Halloween episode with Xeno, where anytime time <laughs> you see that, it's a wizard. And for me, that was the same thing. It's like, well, in this comic, scroll, yeah. <laughs> the problem with conspiracies and a conspiracy-style story is you've got to set it up from the beginning, and both this one and Secret Invasion kind of try to fit a conspiracy into the framework of things that already occurred. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why they never seem to work. Is It, it wasn't written from, from page one all the way through, like, say, a Robert Ludlow story.
0: It's something that I would – and here I'm going to actually make this connection. It's something that I would like to see DC or Warner Brothers attempt with a Justice League movie – of having the sort of secret infiltrators, because Marvel can't do it with their scrolls because Fox owns the movie rights to the scrolls. but DC doing it with the Martians. And then you have Martian Manhunter, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he would be at the center of it, either as a sleeper who is supposed to be part of the invasion, and he either breaks against his, his, his programming and turns against his masters, or he's... He's basically uh, trying to warn them, or or doing something. But I I would like to see that would be an interesting play for a Justice League movie.
1: Yeah, which you know is similar to the Secret Origins pilot of the Justice League cartoon. Yeah, yeah. Where it's he's fighting against the other race of Martians that his people had been at odds with anyway.
0: Right. I said that the last part of the story was a little bit morbid because. Here we have Dan Richards introducing his granddaughter, and of course uh-huh. of course, because Roy can't help himself, she's going to be a legacy factor who's playing into Infinity Incorporated. But even this hint that Dan Richards has kind of grown a little bit skeptical of the Manhunters, and he's a little bit weary, and he's like, I'm not sure if this is the right group, or if they've if they've changed, or if I'm just a little bit wiser now. And this hint that, hey, maybe his granddaughter is going to kill him now, because She's like committed to the Manhunter. Oh, that's, that is a creepy story that I would like to actually read or, or see how that plays out. I just don't want to read Infinity Incorporated to see if that's where it happens.
1: Uh, I did read Infinity Incorporated, and unfortunately it doesn't really play out very effectively. Mm-hmm. He figures out finally that uh, his dog should be dead by now and uh, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. It also brings in Molly Maine. It's been a while since I read Infinity, but I think she was in the periphery, at least at that point. It was definitely where Roy was running out of steam with Infinity Inc. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I kind of felt the story didn't really go in that far with it. it just, he introduces her, and then she pretty much blows the job pretty quickly, kind of thing. And it was more about the reveal of uh, Thor and, and Dan Richards and all that than it was about Marcy Cooper. And so, once again, Roy, rather than try and grab a new audience with the younger characters, is more concerned with the old characters.
0: So what did you think of the issue overall? I mean, you've said that it's one of your favorites. Is it just because of the, the Paul Kirk section?
1: The Paul Kirk is a major factor in it. Uh, but I, I think overall, for the Millennium tie-ins, it works pretty well in fleshing out the, the back history of what's going on in the regular miniseries. So it's a very good reference for anybody who was trying to make heads or tails out of that big crossover, particularly if you weren't that familiar with the Manhunters or some of the other characters. This kind of helped flesh things out a bit and in a lot of ways gave you information that was really missing from the regular comics. So in that, I think it served a good purpose and as a good issue. as As just an issue of Secret Origins, I think the whole crossover thing kind of undermines some of the story, particularly uh, trying to shoehorn Paul Kirk and Dan Richards into the whole thing.
0: They do, and yet, I have to say, this issue works better than I think it has a right to.
1: Yeah, I would Um,
0: the The notion that you're like, okay, anybody who has ever been called Manhunter has to be a manhunter. It has to be part of this organization. I don't buy that, but I do understand that it might be confusing for some people. Like, well, what about this guy? He was a manhunter for years. Is that... Like, well, okay, but the Green Lantern wasn't part of the Green Lantern Corps in the Golden Age. Can we just move beyond that? And it's like, no, we're going to figure out a way to connect them. So... Yeah. I I don't like how DC is always... And not just DC, but comics in general, They they're always so is a harsh term, but so incestuous in the way they kind of link all of these characters together. So I didn't like that, but, but I got to give Roy Thomas a hand of, for the most part, making it work. It's, it's a coherent story. It's logical. He figures out a way of injecting the grandmaster and the history of these man hunters, the organization into the lives of these three human agents and each of one of their individual stories is pretty compelling and pretty interesting. They're they're short, they're well told. And I like the, the front load part because again, because I like the Manhunter androids. The issue was better than I thought it had a right to be. There, yeah. there were a lot of elements that I did like about it, and a lot that I didn't care about for being a millennium tie-in. I, I I'll confess I read this issue for the first time just like two weeks ago because um, I knew I, w- I was going to have to <laughs> for, yeah. for those purposes. but So uh, certain parts of it impressed me. It makes me want to read more about uh, the Paul Kirk Manhunter, not really the others.
1: Yeah, I think Roy really captures it well. I mean, for a one, for one-page summary, for the most part, I mean, aside from a couple of bits here and there, in one page he encapsulates a lot of what was really cool about that Manhunter story. At the same time, the biggest jarring element is the two Manhunters in the same period with Paul Kirk and Dan Richards. But even in that Young All-Star story, which I, I did read afterwards, it's about the only issue of Young All-Stars I read at the time, the story kind of worked. They worked a lot better than Infinity, Inc. They end up crossing paths and, wait a minute, your man, what's going on? And But for the most part, yeah, he, he's able to make it all fit, and it shouldn't, but yet he does a pretty good job on it. And I have read... A few uh, Secret Origins books before this and was kind of ambivalent about it, depending on the character, because the the origins just seemed to be kind of flat, since they weren't embellishing a lot of them. Some were a little better than others. This was one of the first that I really thought, okay, this book has some good stories in it, Mm -hmm. and maybe pick up further Secret Origins stories.
0: Yeah. Do you have any other recommended readings uh, for other good Manhunter stories? Uh,
1: You have to read the the Goodwin Simonson one. Um, It was collected in what they call the Manhunter Special Edition, which included uh, what was supposed to be a kind of coda to it. Then, unfortunately, Archie's cancer had progressed too far, and he died before he and Walt were able to finish it. Walt had um, penciled the issue, um, but Archie never got to the dialogue it. They had plotted it out. Um, and it was his wife, Louise Simonson, who suggested doing it as a silent story. Mm. So you get to find out what happened to the rest of the clones, uh, which leads into another recommended reading, the Secret Society of Supervillains trade paperbacks. The first five issues featured a Manhunter clone who is responsible for recruiting all the villains together into the group and it turns out is working either for or against Darkseid, and sacrifices himself as a living time bomb to try to stop Darkseid. That is totally missing from this story, and it actually started out that series pretty well. It gave it an interesting little hook to why these villains are together and why you should care about a group of supervillains. Uh, I definitely recommend that. Definitely following that, the uh, the Kate Spencer series that uh, Mark Draco wrote.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask uh, you about that.
1: That was really good. I, I kind of came to it late and really enjoyed it. Mark Shaw is revived. The Mark Shaw character, that series has never been collected. Uh, like I said earlier, it, it started out really well, really dynamic. He becomes a bounty hunter of uh, super villains. The the hook was supposed to be that they would end up in Suicide Squad, but it never really worked out that way. And uh, it, it started out with a bang with a, a villain called Dumas, or Dumas, who's a masked character who wants... Uh, the Manhunter Mask And it was really dynamic Doug Rice is a, a highly unsung Comic artist uh, Was from the Chicago area Worked at First Comics with John Ostrander uh, Did a series called Dynamo Joe About a uh, a giant robot um, Battleship Kind of along the lines of like Voltron And those kind of things And Rice was a big fan of Japanese animation And live action shows And he kind of threw a ton of action into it And he ended up leaving the series halfway into it, which is kind of where it runs out of steam, because he felt that it was becoming too talky, and it was supposed to be a big action series, and he kind of felt that it moved away from that. I I met him at a convention and and got to speak to him at length about the book. And uh, uh, it was really a shame. The way he described it, it would have been a fantastic series. As it was, it was a decent one. Um, But Mark Shaw ended up being killed off in the Eclipso uh, comic that followed... uh, the Eclipse of Darkness within uh, annual kind of miniseries that DC mm-hmm. did and, except for he got better and then turned up in the the 1990s Manhunter book where he had a guy named Chase Lawler in that rather ugly costume that followed Zero Hour and
0: he nah, turned okay, up okay yeah <laughs> I was going to ask you I was like which one he was he turned that
1: up got? in the last issue of that and Alive it turned out it was all tied in with Dumas he was under the influence of this kind of nanobite um, serum, which he then carries over into the Kate Spencer series where they kill off the Chase Lawler character and the other Manhunter who popped up, which was another clone that turned up in Kurt Busick's power company. Which Busick at least um, sought Archie Goodwin's blessing before he ever introduced that character. Uh, But he was supposed to be one of the clones that escaped. And one of the themes in there is that people always bring up Paul Kirk and he says he doesn't care about Paul Kirk, but it's pretty obvious that he's trying to be Paul Kirk. He even, he, call, he gives himself the name Kirk Paul, and is operating in Africa. Um, I didn't read the whole Power Company series. I've only sampled it, but that seemed like Busick was really doing something there. Um, so the Kate Spencer one kind of ties up all of those other Manhunters that had been around as they build her as the character. And Mark Shaw turns up uh, partway into it, and then sticks around for a while. That is a really good series. And that character, Kate Spencer, turned up in Arrow early on just as a uh, a district attorney type, um, which is what her job was in the comics. But she was killed off and never became Manhunter in Arrow.
0: For my part, I would recommend, again, it's not going to be for all of our listeners, but if you... If you enjoyed the Jeff Johns era of Green Lantern, just his first year on that book after Rebirth, uh, he had he had two storylines involving the Manhunter robots that I really really liked. Um, so any of those issues from the first year. Jeff, final thoughts on the Manhunters?
1: Uh, again, it's a really great concept that worked well in several different forms. I think this issue shows that very well how uh, the idea of a hunter of criminals could be kind of molded in different eras into really compelling stories.
0: Agreed. Well, well, thank you very much for joining us again and being part of the Secret Origins podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. I've had a lot of fun doing this.
0: Before diving into the listener feedback section, I wanted to mention what I'm sure you already know. Last week saw the premiere episode of Supergirl on CBS. I had problems with the episode, but none that make me want to stop watching. In fact, I'm really excited for what will come next on the show. A lot of blogs and podcasts have discussed and reviewed the show, including some of the Friends of the Secret Origins podcast. First, you gotta check out Dr. Ange's post on the Supergirl blog comic box commentary. And then the Superman and Batman podcast hosted by Michael Bradley. His last episode was a roundtable review of the Supergirl pilot with guests including Professor Allen and Emily Middleton from the Relatively Geeky Network, Chris and Cindy Franklin from the Supermates podcast. Bob Fisher from Superman Forever Radio, and Michael Bailey from Views from the Longbox and from Crisis to Crisis. A great little talk about the show, a little gushy, a little one-sided perhaps, but still just as fun as Supergirl herself. Okay, let's get on with the listener feedback section. Last episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from Ange, Anthony Durso, Bat Overland, Between the Pages, Brian Mulvey, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Reflections, Diabalu Frank, Doug Zavisha, DS and RS, Film and Water Podcast, Firestorm Fan, Greg Russo, The Hammer Strikes, Jim at Jimfinity, Keith G. Baker, Cord Industries, Mark Sweeney, Matthias Wesley, Max Power, Mike M., Nathaniel Wayne, Radio vs. the Martians, Reading Hicks, Sin, and Trekker Talk. Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast said he was seriously considering a Waiting for Condor podcast, which Diablo Frank pointed out mere seconds before I could, that it would also be known as the Waiting for an Audience podcast. If you mentioned the show on Twitter last week and I forgot to include your name, please let me know and I'll be sure to give you a shout-out next time. Over on the Secret Origins Podcast Facebook page, new likes, shares, and mentions came from Andy Capellish, Anthony Durso, Clinton Robson, Comic Reflections, David Sopko, Derek William Crabb, Firestorm Fan, Gene Hendricks, Gotham Shioran, G.I. Joe, a Real American Headcast. Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, Head Speaks, Jimmy McGlinchey, Joe Crawford, Cord Industries, Leon Bain, Max Romero, Mike Gillis, Neil Patterson, Nicholas Prom, Podcast de la Vista, Baby, Prabekar Rajarapu, Rob Kelly, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Myers, Tim Wallace, Trevor Owen Williams, and Van Z. Darren Sutherland from the Trekker Talk podcast said, I now know more than I ever expected about Jonah Hex. As a huge fan of the Wild Wild West TV series, I sadly accept it was turned into a bad movie. And as a longtime fan of The Lone Ranger, I'm now stuck with another horrible movie, so I can certainly understand the pain you all feel about having Jonah Hex adapted into a bad movie. Clinton Robison from the Coffee and Comics blog said, I can always forgive Golden Age comics, but the Black Condor origin is out there even for me. Wonderfully fun, but woefully wacky. I still say he is what Stratos from Masters of the Universe looks like after a trip to the laser hair removal clinic, though. Nice. Uh, Got some great comments on the Secret Origins WordPress page. As always, I'm only reading bits and pieces from the responses, and it's also worth noting that just about everyone who left a comment paid respect to the passing of Murphy Anderson. Rob Kelly from the Aquaman Shrine, the Fire and Water podcast, and the Film and Water podcast said, Ryan and Mike's astonished reactions to Tim's true-life hex stories were priceless, as was Mike's Darwin Award concept for Black Condor. This is an award for a guy who died doing this. Frank is usually able to find something good to say about any superhero concept, but even he advised just throwing in the towel with Black Condor. I think that's a first. True, Rob, but Frank is also able to find fault in damn near any superhero concept. Just look at all of his comments on this or any podcast. Still, Frank suffered what few others would dare to by helping me cover Black Condor and next episode's Floronic Man origin in one recording session. Whew! Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, "'I have to say that most of my Hex comic knowledge comes from later stories. I bought the Lansdale-Truman stuff and liked the sort of Vertigo vibe we got there. Plus, Truman seems perfect for these stories.' but I really enjoyed the recent Grey Palmiati series. It was never on my pull list, but I always seemed to pick up the book. These were mostly done-in-one books with art from the most insane group of artists I can recall assembled on one title. Noto, Bernay, Tucci, Heath, Glacey, Camoncoli, Williams III, Cook, Giordano, and others. Just eye candy. I also liked the addition of Tallulah Black, a sort of female analog to Hex. That is a murderer's row of artistic talent there. It can't be said often enough, go read some Jonah Hex comics. Speaking of which, Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks podcast said, Jonah Hex is one of those characters I've always liked the look of, but have experienced very little. Really, just the animated short at this point. It's interesting to find out that his backlog of stories is as strong as it sounds from you guys. I love the tropes of westerns, the frontier towns, the lone gunmen, the harsh environment, but I've never been able to divorce the image of the cowboy from the extreme kid-friendly version I grew up on. I see the hat, or the boots, or hear the accent, and I think of going to Six-Gun City when I was seven, and it's really hard to take seriously. That said, I should probably give this guy a closer look. Yep, you should. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast said, I hate to admit, but I didn't like Gray Morrow's artwork as a kid, especially when he did Batman and refused to draw his eyes all white. Now, I greatly appreciate his realistic approach, especially on features like this. Of the black condor origin, Chris said, I think Frank is right, that Thomas should have taken this opportunity to reveal a new origin, but his compulsions wouldn't allow that. I understand Ryan's enjoyment of the story, and I too like a good Tarzan Mowgli raised by animals' tail, but condors? Condors? That's a species too far. Even with a glowing meteor. Did the meteor make the condor smarter, more advanced, less likely to just eat the poor kid? Jeff Nettleton said, Hex was probably the best attempt at carrying on the Western legacy following the example set by Sergio Leone, rather than trying to continue the traditions of the 50s Westerns. Hex always attracted artists who excelled at the gritty settings and character, and Grey Morrow fits that bill. Uh, Jeff talked about Lou Fine's art on the original Black Condor strip. He is about the only artist who has ever captured the joy of flight as one would assume a person who could fly would actually feel. Condor swooped and dove. Fine gave different perspectives and angles that emphasized Condor moving through the air. Mark Sweeney wrote in and said Gray Morrow did the last couple of issues of Jonah Hex's first series, so he was the perfect choice of artist for this secret origin. I am a huge fan of his art, but sometimes I don't think his work reproduces well on newsprint, and some of his impressive detail is lost. I'd love to see his work here and in those last couple of Hex stories reprinted on quality paper. And at that, Mark, Chris Franklin, and Jeff Nettleton all offered speculation on Gray Morrow's inking process. Finally, Kyle Benning from King Size Comics Giant Size Fun said. Jonah Hex for the win. He truly is the comic book version of Clint Eastwood's character in any of his western films, and then the scar and uniform just give that extra edge to make him stand out and be truly unique and recognizable compared to the rest of the western characters. I think DC had a better handle on the western genre than Marvel, for sure. That's not knocking Marvel, but their characters seem to be much more in the vein of Gunsmoke or Bonanza, which is fine, but it just doesn't compare to High Plains Drifter. I agree with Kyle, and this has been mentioned before, that while Marvel dabbled in the Western and the horror genres, their Western and horror characters tended to fall in line with a lot of their superhero tropes, especially in the 60s and 70s, whereas DC actually explored those genres and made them feel genre-compatible with their Westerns and horror stories. Uh, Kyle also says, Gray Morrow was the perfect choice. Love his work on the Greg Sanders Vigilante stories that were in the Dollar Comics era of World's Finest Comics. Those were good stories. I'm just putting that out there myself. And Kyle concludes, Good to hear Frank back on. Can't get enough of his crazy obscure comic info dumps. As much as he does not like Roy Thomas, he has a Roy Thomas level of comic history knowledge on Golden Age obscurity. He's like Roy's rebellious son. I'm sure Frank will love to hear that. Once again, I want to thank everyone who left a comment or promoted this podcast on social media, and I want to thank my guest, Jeff Nettleton, for appearing on the show again. That's all for this episode. Feedback for the show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or at BlackCanaryFan or the username countdrunkula. You can also email your feedback to blackcanaryfan at gmail.com, and please let me know if the message is private and you don't want it read on a future episode. The Secret Origins podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening.